Hi, everyone. This is Javier, your host here at the Restore Podcast. We would love to hear your thoughts about the Restore Podcast topics, guests, your favorite episodes, or whatever you may want to let us know. And I am so happy to announce that now you can do that simply by texting us by going to the show notes. There, you will see a link that simply says, send us a text message. Click on it. Don't remove the number there that you will see and simply send us a text. Simple as that. So don't wait. Go to any episode show notes and text us now. Let us know your thoughts. We can't wait to hear from you. God bless. Welcome to Restore, a podcast seeking to restore the vision, restore the mission, restore the church. And now your host, Javier Diaz. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Restore Podcast, Episode 28. My name is Javier, and I am your host. I hope and pray you're all doing well wherever and however you may be listening. As always, thank you so much for your reviews of the podcast. Please, please keep them coming, and thank you for sharing the Restore Podcast as well. Our continued goal is that this resource will be one avenue in which we will help restore the vision, restore the mission, restore the church. With that said, I've been so excited to release this current episode. A few months ago, a colleague of mine shared a book that he really felt every pastor should read, or for that matter, every follower of Jesus should read. Trusting his judgment, I bought and read the book and was so impressed by it that I decided to contact the authors to discuss the subject matter. Hopefully, they would be on it. Well, first, what's the title of the book? Well, it's The Discipleship Gospel by Bill Hall and Ben Sobels. And when I contacted them, they were so gracious and said yes. Many of you will have probably read one of his books or at least heard of Bill Hall. From his own webpage bio, he states his passion is to help the church return to its disciple-making roots. And he considers himself a discipleship evangelist. The co-author of the book is Ben Sobels, who is a senior pastor at Cypress Community Church in Salinas, California, and serves as regional director of the Bonhoeffer Project. More on that later. Friends, I really believe that, one, you should buy the book. The publisher of the book has given the Restore podcast a 20% discount for the paperback, so you really won't get the paperback any cheaper, not even on Amazon. So if you want the paperback, All you have to do is go to himpublications.com. When you check out, type restore where it says apply coupon and you're set. Secondly, I also believe that you will be challenged and inspired on a topic that we have discussed quite a bit on this podcast, but perhaps not like you are about to hear. So without further ado, here's my conversation with the authors of The Discipleship Gospel by Bill Hall and Ben Sobels. I want to welcome uh, Bill and Ben to the Restore Podcast. Welcome, guys. Hey, how are you? Thank you. Great to be with you. I'm doing great. And uh, again, it is such a blessing to have both of you on. Um, and um, I want to thank you again for your time. Thank you for writing the book. And we're, we have a lot to talk about the book. But before we get to talking about the book um, here in the Restore Podcast, I always like to ask um, my guests to tell me a little bit about themselves. So, uh, Ben, why don't we start with you? Let's be honest. Some people that are listening to this, many people are going to know a little bit about Bill, but um, we want to know a little bit about you, Ben. So tell us um, your journey, your calling in ministry, and how you how you came to be where you're at, and uh, perhaps how you got to meet Bill. 
Mm, that's really good. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in Australia for the first 25 years of my life. I lived in Australia. I did come over when I was 22 years old to America to caddy for a friend of mine on the mm. golf tour. And uh, during that six months of caddying for him, that's when I became a Christian. So at 22 years old, that's when I become a Christian. I go back to Australia. Then I come back to the States when I'm 25 to go to seminary um, and spent uh, three and a half years in seminary, then was part of a church plant out here in California. And um, now I'm pastoring a church here in Salinas, California, named Cypress Community Church. I've been here for almost 10 years. Um, and I met Bill because uh, I read a book of his, The, the Disciple Making Pastor, and I was like, I really want him to come to our church and do a discipleship seminar. And so I called him up and he answered the phone and I couldn't believe that he actually answered the phone. And, he, and I asked him if he would come to our church to do a, a weekend seminar on discipleship and he agreed. And so um, that was in 2015 we met um, with him coming to our church and, and leading a weekend discipleship seminar, which was awesome. And that led into a partnership with the Bonhoeffer Project. I went through the Bonhoeffer Project with him in 2016, and then we've been working together ever since. Wow, amazing. Um, regarding the, the, uh, your uh, journey, you know I'm going to have to ask this. So the golf, are we going to be able to know who you caddied for, or is that top secret that we, we, can't, we can't go there? My, yeah, well, my good friend uh, Dean Larson, he's a, a club professional in, in Dallas, Texas now, so he came okay. over with three or four guys and uh, in that group. So I was caddying for Dean, but then on off weeks, uh, I got to caddy for Stuart Appleby. And he, of course, made um, some headway on the, on the tour for a number of years. So it was yeah. a group group of Australian guys that came over and, and, and it, was, it was fun. It was really, that was a great time. The most significant part of it, though, was I came to know the Lord during that six months, which radically changed my life. Right, and I'm glad you, you mentioned that. I don't want people to think, out of all that, he asked golf question. I said, come on, we're pastors, right? <laughs> um, but, um, That's a podcast bogey, you know, when you... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, let, let me, let me kind of hit it in the hole now um, and, and putt really well. And uh, what I want to ask you is that, uh, just a little follow-up, um, so how did that transpire? How, how did you get to know the Lord um, while caddying for um, your friend? What, what I mean, conversations, are you walking from hole to hole, or how, what transpired there? No, my, my friend, uh, he became a Christian his final year in college and then made it onto the tour. And so he was already a Christian, and he invited me to a Bible study. And just to show you how clueless I was at that point, about church and Christianity and the whole thing. I didn't even know that people studied the Bible. So when he invited me to Bible study, I just went along because I was interested in finding out what people do. And um, so he was inviting me into church to church, to Bible studies, to all these different things. And I just began processing through a whole lot of information that I'd never even heard before. And um, so it only took a couple of months. I came over in February and by uh, April, which was Easter Sunday. It was Easter Sunday. The pastor stood up and preached the gospel, and um, I was just ready. I was so prepared for like 10 years. The Lord had been preparing me through a whole lot of different stuff that when he preached, I was just ready to hear it, and, and um, that's part of the reason why I love the gospel and writing a book on the gospel is because it's just changed my life. Well, praise the Lord, and we are we are glad that it changed your life because the book has been a blessing to myself and I know many others, so thank you, Ben, for that. Bill, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, tell us um, a little bit about your a journey and your calling um, to where you are now. 
Okay, well, great, Javier. Thank you. Um, well, I was uh, raised in Indianapolis, Indiana, and uh, I was taller than most people. <laughs> so uh, I started playing basketball. And so as a result of playing basketball, I was a, I was given a basketball scholarship to go to college. And so I, I went out to Oklahoma to play basketball in this uh, junior college. We called them then. Now they're called community colleges. And I had a two good two years there. And so I had many opportunities to play basketball at four-year schools. And to the surprise of everyone, I chose Oral Roberts University, oh. which was a relatively new school, but they had a great basketball program. So I went there, and it was during my junior year in college uh, when I was 21 years old that one night I just got on my knees and said, Lord, I don't know what this all means, but I'm yours. Hmm. And so I made that decision, and the next day I got up and I borrowed a Bible from my roommate, and I began to read the Bible. And I started at the beginning, and I was just fine till I got to Leviticus. Then I got hung up, and somebody <laughs> suggested I just skip it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so uh, I, I came back to it a bit later. Uh, but then uh, there was a gentleman in the faculty who invited me over to his house, and I, I didn't know why he would invite me over to his home, except he said he wanted to talk to me about Bible study. So I went over to his home, and he told me that what he wanted to do was have me meet with him once a week for a year, and that we would go through the Book of Romans, and he would provide donuts and coffee, and then I would memorize three verses of Scripture a week. Wow. And of course, this was in addition to my uh, going to college and then playing basketball, which, and then, of course, uh, falling in love with my wife, uh, this was all, you know, I was a very busy guy. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but I, I uh, had a great basketball career there at Old Roberts University, and then uh, my wife and I married, and then I went to um, play basketball for a team called Athletes in Action. We traveled all over the world. Australia was one of the places we traveled. That's not when I met Ben, but uh, I uh, later, many years later, uh, actually in the 1990s, I, I, I went to Australia and they said, well, we want you to go to this uh, town where they're going to have a conference. And, and I said, where's the name of the town? What's the name of the town? They said, Bellina. Hmm. And it's just this little tiny coastal town on the north east side of Australia and not far from the farthest eastern point of all the entire continent of Australia. But I got there and uh, I found out later that was the little town that Ben was born and raised in. So uh, it was remarkable. I think that uh, it was the only town, I'm the only American I think that he met that had been there. Um, but then um, I, uh, after I retired from playing basketball, you know, I, I really wanted to get involved in making disciples. This had been bred in me, not only as a student at ORU, but also as a member of the Athletes in Action basketball team that we were also part of Campus Crusade for Christ. So as a result, that led me to uh, want to go to seminary because I, I really sensed that I should be a pastor. And so I went to Talbot Theological Seminary for four years and got involved and ordained in the Evangelical Free Church. And uh, 
the other, I guess, relevant data is that um, my wife and I have been married nearly 50 years now, and we have two wow. sons, uh, two great daughter-in-laws, uh, three grandsons, and I have the privilege of living this life that God's called me to, and I just thank him every day for it. It's a wonderful thing that he's given to me. Wow. Well, uh, Bill, thank you for that. Um, I'm sure many of the listeners of the Restore podcast probably haven't heard part of that story. Um, and so we are um, delighted that you're able to tell us that. And we praise God for how he's led you and um, the many books you've written and your influence when it's come to um, teaching people to make disciples that make disciples. And so mm. thank you for that. And thank you both guys for a little bit of your backstory. Um, so let, let's get straight into the book now. Um, uh, Bill or Ben, who, whoever wants to start, um, why don't we start with maybe a quick summary of the book and then we'll begin to unpack it a little bit and uh, go from there. So whoever would like to start and kind of tell us um, if somebody um, you know, would ask, give me a summary of the book, how would you do that in five minutes or less? Hmm. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll, uh, an I'll answer the first part of the question. Let Ben yeah. answer the harder part of the question. Uh, <laughs> we, you know, uh, what we've been doing together for a number of years is talking about what's essentially how our gospel is broken. Mm -hmm. And we talk about various gospels that have been perpetrated upon us, uh, that gospels that we've been taught and uh, in different genres or tribes of mm -hmm. the uh, conservative Christianity, and such as the forgiveness-only gospel or the prosperity gospel, or we call the gospel of the right or the gospel of the left, or the consumer gospel. And then there's the gospel of the kingdom. But what we did was we talked about these gospels, and then at some point, Ben and I were just sitting out on a bench in St. Louis outside of a hotel. I think we were waiting to go to dinner with somebody. And I said, you know, we ought to write a book about what we are for. We've been spending a lot of our time talking about what we're against, but what are we for? And so we decided that we would put together something, and we called it the Discipleship Gospel. Hmm. And uh that was that's why we wrote it, uh, because we wanted to say here is what we're saying is a robust, uh, full gospel that includes discipleship as a natural part of what it means to be saved. Hmm. Because uh, we've had this problem of separating what a Christian is from what a disciple is. Wow! And then when salvation is split in half there between conversion and discipleship, then it makes conversion, the con con conversion part of it, uh, as an absolute, you have to have that. And then, but discipleship is becomes an option. Hmm. So we wanted to address that issue, and I think we address it pretty effectively in the book. And I'll let uh, Ben tell you about the contents of the book. Uh, okay. He he um, he wrote most of the the real meaty part in the middle. Okay. Um, and there's some good meat in there. Um, ben, before you answer that, and I, I really want to hear obviously what you're about to say, but Bill, just a quick follow up, and I'm going to ask you, Ben, the same question um, as well as a follow up to the previous one. Um, can 
Can you identify, Bill, especially, I mean, you've had a long trajectory, you know, um, a, a, a blessed one, as you told us. Um, can you identify, perhaps, besides the conversation you were having with Ben in writing the book, but I'm sure you've had many before, um, a significant turning point in your life where you, where you felt that you became more keenly aware of, of that disconnect between biblically what the gospel is, discipleship, um, and the Christian church? Well, I think there's been three big moments in my life that have okay. pretty much guided me. The first was when I read The Master Plan for Evangelism when I was in college by Robert Coleman. Correct. Uh, which is a, a short book, about 110 pages, but uh, a real gold standard. But uh, the second was when I became a pastor and I realized that what Coleman had written about was not practiced in churches. And the reason it wasn't practiced in churches was because the infrastructure of churches and what the church valued was quite different than what Jesus had actually demonstrated in his life. So wow. then I, I, that's what got me to start writing was, first of all, I just wanted to establish that Jesus Christ was a disciple maker. And that was my first book that came out in 1984. And then, uh, then there was the disciple making pastor. And then People would say, well, how do you put this all together? And that was the disciple-making church. So those were some of the early books that I wrote. And I was just trying to address this issue of if, because people kept telling me it, it, if it, do, it can't work in the church. And I said, listen, if it doesn't work in the church, then it's, it's not what Christ commanded. Mm, yeah. Uh, and because it has to be able to work through the church because that's where the people are. That's his bride, that's his people, that's his building, that's his body, and he has decided to utilize that group of people to evangelize the world. Mm. So uh, I think that that was the second big thing. The third thing, you know, and then 20 years of pastoral life uh, yeah. just led me to, from, to do one thing to the other, but the third thing was when I, when I met Dallas Willard, Back in mm. 2001, uh, Dallas Willard had written a book in the 90s called The Divine Conspiracy. And in this book, he essentially addresses this problem of the gospel. And I suppose I can summarize it briefly by saying that he essentially said that the gospel you believe in determines the kind of Christian you become. Mm. So, for example, if you are a legalistic, you have a legalistic gospel, you can be a legalistic Christian. Mm. And if you're a consumeristic gospel, you're going to be a consumeristic Christian. And then as I was developing this idea in the early 2000s uh, as a pastor, one of the things that really struck me was that it's also true that the gospel you believe determines the disciple you make. And I think that's where, around that statement, is where Ben and I really connected. Right. And uh, so I think that, that those were some of the, the big moments of, of how, you know, so we've got a problem, and the problem is that people believe that you can become a Christian and not follow Jesus. Mm. And that's pervasive. So how do you change that? And the way that we thought we would change it is by finding leaders whose God has prepared and get them around a table together for a year and change their minds, change their hearts and change their habits. And 
that's essentially what we do in the Bonhoeffer Project. And that and that writing this book, the Discipleship Gospel, is part of that process of creating a movement among disciple-making leaders. So that's pretty much my summary of you know how I got to where uh, we are right now. That's amazing, Bill. And I, I got to believe there's going to be somebody that's going to be listening to this when we release it as he's he or she is going to be running on a treadmill or outside and just going to be going, yes, yes, yes. Uh, because that's what I'm doing right now as I'm sitting down here listening to you. Um, so, uh, you know, Ben, uh, feeding off of that, uh, kind of summarize the book. He, and I know Bill just mentioned two of the main taglines of the book, but if you can give us a summary as well, and at the same time, maybe answer the question, the same one I asked him, if there was a, a, a significant turning point in your life with the same essence uh, that you said, you know, when I'm reading in the Bible about the gospel discipleship, I, I'm not seeing it in the Christian church. Uh, um, and it's, you know, so if you can open up about that. Yeah, um, so the the book is about the gospel, and Bill was really good in, you know, we're presenting what we believe as we open up the gospels and we look at Jesus' ministry. What was the gospel that Jesus preached? That, that's that got to be the starting point. And for, for Bill and me, as we were talking through all these different issues, uh, you know, we had defined these non-discipleship gospels um, in the Bonhoeffer Project but what, what is the gospel we are for? What's the positive? What, what is actually the gospel? So we went back and looked through um, the gospels and tried to discern, okay, what is the gospel that Jesus was preaching? Now, if you read a lot of books, there's a lot of books and there's a lot of focus and a lot of attention given to the gospel. We talk a lot about the gospel, but when it actually comes to defining what the gospel is, it's pretty sketchy. Like even books that are, that are tight, the title is, you know, the gospel something. Um, very rarely do you have a, a definition that's a full, what I would call a full gospel in the sense that it's really not presenting all the elements that Jesus spoke about. So in, in the book, we basically focus in on Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel in Mark chapter one and Mark chapter eight reveal right. seven elements of the gospel. So Jesus starts preaching the kingdom of God has come, repent and believe and follow me. That's Mark chapter one. And then Mark chapter eight he really brings in what, what would be called the, the core of the gospel, which is that he is the Christ and it's about his death and his resurrection. And then you start seeing through from Mark 8 and Mark uh, 1, all of Jesus' ministries focused around, okay, if this is the gospel, how do I live that out in my life? How do I deny myself, take up my cross and follow Jesus? So um, in some ways, the, the book is kind of calling for, um, the kingdom of God to be reckoned with again. Uh, there's a lot of gospel presentations these days that um, there's not one mention of the kingdom of God. And yet, you know, that was the thrust of Jesus' ministry. He mentioned it over a hundred times. It was the first thing he preached about. It was the last thing he taught on. And yet today you never, you very rarely hear the kingdom of God talked about in the context of the gospel, but it feels like that's betraying the essence of Jesus' message. Um, and in the, sa in the same token, on the other end of the gospel, um, you know, Jesus consistently called people to follow him. And it's very rare that you'll hear a gospel presentation these days, which is actually giving people a sense that this is more than just praying a prayer or it's a momentary thing that you're going to have salvation in this moment. And there's nothing required of you um, past this. 
And so just to include the, the call of Jesus to follow him, um, to follow him without excuses, without conditions for the rest of your life, that all of a sudden begins opening up language that people can get their head around that is, okay, I'm making a decision to commit myself to follow Jesus. That begins with repentance and belief, but it requires me to live a new life. And the only way I can live that life is in the power of God's grace and by his Holy Spirit. Um, so there's a whole lot of elements just in the stuff that I just kind of threw out yeah. there um, that is very rarely talked about. And so we just wanted to go on record and say, okay, here's, here's what the gospel that Jesus preached is. And now let's reflect on whether we're actually preaching that gospel. And to get to the second part of your question, um, kind of where did, did this become personal for me? Bill and my story are actually very similar in the sense that I read um, The Master Plan of Evangelism. Mm -hmm. And when I read that book, I was like, as a young person just out of seminary, I was like, I want to do this, what he's writing about. I want to do this for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And then I went into the local church and all I was doing was managing programs. And, mm. and I was like, this is not the same. This is not what I read in the master plan of evangelism. And so I was having this massive disconnect between what I wanted to do and what I was actually doing. And then Bill brought it together for me when he came and did that seminar we talked about earlier. Uh, and he basically just said, the gospel you preach determines the disciples you make. And mm. that one sentence brought a whole bunch of stuff that had been disconnected in my mind all of wow. a sudden it brought a lot of stuff together and that that basically shifted my whole journey and redirected me in a lot of ways and a lot of things started connecting that had been disconnected for 20 years. Powerful, powerful. Thank you, Ben. And um, perfect segue. I want to kind of unpack those two statements and, the, and, and the, the two that I'm talking about, you just stated one, right? The gospel you preach determines the disciples you make. Um, for those that have read the book and those that will read the book, um, they're going to see that very clearly in, in, in the book, that uh, sentence, and the one that Bill also mentioned before, that um, you cannot make disciples from a non-discipleship gospel. Uh, so let's kind of unpack those two statements um, just a little bit for a little while here. Um, and uh, let, let's begin with uh, that a non-discipleship gospel versus a discipleship gospel. So you kind of guys have already alluded to it, but um, Ben, let's go back with you and then Bill, you can uh, chime in as well. Um, explain that, expound on that a little bit more for us. And I understand the book does it, so however much you want to say and leave it up to the others that they can go and read it. Um, and so a non-discipleship versus a discipleship gospel. Yeah, the, the essence of a non-discipleship gospel is that it does not call you to be a disciple of Jesus. Mm. Um, so so it's calling you into a life that's something, the focus is something other than being a disciple and making disciples. So Jesus' call of the gospel is follow me. Um, and so a non-discipleship gospel doesn't ask you to follow Jesus. It, it's, you know, a prosperity gospel calls you to focus on prosperity and becoming a prosperity disciple. A legalistic gospel calls you to focus in on the legalistic rules that you have to follow. Um, a consumer gospel calls you to make it all about you and just get what you can get and not what you can give. Um, so non-discipleship gospels make the gospel something other than following Jesus. And that would mm. be the way I would summarize it. Okay. Excellent. Uh, Bill, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that the, the Gospels that are prevalent in our society uh, essentially 
they they feed into what I would call a uh, very secular mindset. And uh, I was reading just recently uh, what Tim Keller said about four narratives uh, uh, that are advanced in Western secularism, and but that these four narratives are very common in the church. For example, uh, the identity narrative, which says you have to be true to yourself, or the freedom narrative that I should be free to live any way I want as long as I'm not harming anyone, or the happiness narrative. You know, I have... Uh, we hear people say this about their kids all the time. I just want them to be happy. I just want them to have a good time. I want them to enjoy their life. Or the morality narrative, which argues that no one has the right to tell anyone what is right for him or her. And these four narratives are very prevalent in the church, yet they are deeply contrary to the idea of Christian discipleship. Hmm. Because the gospel essentially says take up your cross and follow me. Wow. Now there's nothing ambiguous about that. Uh, it's it simply following is the essential proof that I am, have believed on Christ. Hmm. And to say you believe on Christ, but not to follow Christ, as James says in chapter two, that's not saving faith. So a lot of people think they're Christian because they've been told they're Christians. Because, and they've been told that profession of belief is belief. And that belief is agreement. And I think that biblical faith, the faith of Scripture, is unlike that modern English equivalent of what is meant by faith. Wow. And that the life that we've been called into is a life of submission and humility and of accountability hmm. and of serving others. And so when we're serving others, that's when we actually have joy. Hmm. Uh, that's when we actually have the purpose and meaning. And Jesus was a man for others, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, and we are his disciples. So we are called to live for others. And we are called to put aside our selfish ways. And uh, the, the therapeutic gospel, the therapeutic language of our society that has led to softness and uh, people who not only want equal rights, but they want equal results and they want everybody to finish first and no one to finish last. That all of this plays into this idea that, uh, that we're really not sinners and we don't really need to be saved. You know, I, I think that this is just a, I guess I could go on and I probably should stop here. Okay. Yeah, that's, again, this is this from both of you, just uh, fire here. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be, I think people are really going to want to, uh, they may have to listen twice to this episode here uh, to grasp everything. And that's okay. Um, let me ask you a follow-up question uh, to both of you regarding this. I know some people may be listening and going, but, but, but grace um, so how would you guys define, and again, maybe they're not, but I'm nonetheless going to ask this question. How would you guys define biblical grace? You know, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. So how would you guys define that? Yeah, I, I, I'm going to just jump in there. Um, yeah. I, I one, one of the things that as we've been sharing this message and calling people to follow Jesus and getting back to Jesus gospel 
um, that people have been questioning us on and I've received a number of emails about is that this sounds a whole lot like work salvation. This sounds a whole lot like you're telling me to, to do something that sounds anti-grace um, and it violates God's grace in some way. But I, I think um, as you read through the book, hopefully what you pick up if you're questioning that is there's a whole section on there, this is not work salvation. And the explanation, right. it, ca it actually causes you to press into what is grace. And grace is God's work in our lives and enabling us and empowering us to do things that we are un unable to do in and of ourselves. And so any concept of following Jesus that I'm doing in my own strength is an unbiblical concept of following Jesus. So I can only follow Jesus by grace and in the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no other way that I can follow Jesus. Um, and so if, if my obedience is being empowered by the spirit and is coming out of living in God's grace, which is it living in Christ, um, then it can't be, it can't be works-based salvation because good works are never bad in the Bible. Um, there's a whole section in the book that, you know, if you look at the first good works in the Bible, they're in Genesis chapter one, you know, mm. God is the one who's doing all the work of creation. And at the end of that creative work, he pronounces it good. So the first good works in the scriptures are God's works and good works are always the work of God. And so you've got verses like Philippians chapter one, verse six, where it's talking about, you know, he who began a good work in you will be faithful yeah. to complete it. Yeah. Um, that's God's grace going to work in our lives. And, and um, there's a whole other lot of scriptures that we can look at, but there's definitely bad works. There's works of the flesh. There's works of the law. There's evil works. If you look through the New Testament, you'll find a list of about seven of them. Um, but good works in the Bible are never bad. They're always done in God's grace and by the power of God's spirit. And so for us, the discipleship gospel, which is really Jesus' kingdom gospel, um, Jesus' kingdom gospel pushes us to, to reorient ourselves around a biblical understanding of God's grace that empowers obedience in our lives, which enables us to follow Jesus. Beautiful. Um, thank you, Ben. Uh, Bill, what are your thoughts? Same, same follow-up question. Well, Ben did a really thorough job, but I have to say that when I was in, when I was in college, uh, my roommate gave me a book, and it said, and the title of the book was, Grace is not a blue-eyed blonde, and it was uh, it was kind of a in other words it was trying to uh, deconstruct I suppose a lot of false ideas about grace. Right. And I think that the main false idea about grace is that it's some big dollop of God's favor that falls out of heaven on your head at the moment that you become a Christian, mm -hmm. and that's the most of His grace you'll ever get that grace is primarily something that addresses the moment of salvation. Now, I even don't even like some of these terminologies, like the moment of salvation, but uh, I believe that there is a moment when we cross the line or in our heart, in our will, in our volition. But I think that grace is not some special species of God's favor. It's uh, I think, think sometimes we think of our when we think of the scriptures, we we hear the word mind or we hear the word spirit or soul or will or mind. And there's seven immaterial parts to a human nature. And the scripture talks about this. But 
And then some people think of all of these as separate things that sit on a shelf. And you pull off when you're talking about, and, and everyone's very specific. Well, I think actually the Bible is much more um, connected than that, uh, integrated than that. Because when we're think, when God is talking about, when the writer is talking about thinking, mm-hmm. then he'll use the word mind. Uh, he's thinking about the whole inner person. He might use the word soul or in the Old Testament, particularly the word heart or uh, as it relates to the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God. Uh, so I think that essentially when we talk about grace, grace is that part of who God is in his nature mm. that that is all that's based upon his mercy and his grace are just ways of explaining his favor and his work among us and his love for us. And so uh, I think of using God's grace every day that, as Dallas Willard used to say, we burn up, Christians burn up more of God's grace uh, in our lives than we, you know, we, 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 we use up tremendous amounts of his grace every single day. But it, it, it's an integrated understanding. You know, we could use other words. We could say God's power. We could say God's love. We could say God's spirit. We could say God's strength. Uh, we could say all of these things, and it would mean essentially the same thing as his grace, I think. Powerful. You know, you mentioned Dallas Willard several times, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You're, you're probably more versed um, uh, with his writings even than I am, but... I believe it was he that said, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Is that that's is correct? That, yeah. That's, and so that's I think, spot on. Yes. Yeah. So I think that's in part what you're in a sense uh, saying. Is that, is that fair to say? Yes. You know, his definition of grace, he had his own special way being a biblicist and not so much a theologian, theologian, but a, but a, um, a philosopher. He said that, Grace is God's energy or power to do for us what we can't do in our own. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's not a, it's not a theological sounding uh, definition, but it's it, it's one that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So that's excellent. So that that imagine that was just the first part uh, that or the first statement. You cannot make disciples from a non-discipleship gospel. Um, and you guys do a fabulous job and just like you said, the meaty part and unpacking that fully in the book. Um, so thank you guys for, for spending some time there. Let's, let's go to the second one now, um, which, you know, when I read this one on both of these uh, statements, but when I read this one, at least on a personal basis, the gospel you preach determines the, the disciples you make. Um, you know, um, you guys really bothered me with that statement. I want to say it. But you guys, uh, Ben is smiling right now, just so that you could know, um, and uh, Bill, but um, in a good way, because as a preacher, as a speaker, right, I'm thinking, you know, uh, these guys are really making me go deep in in my own um, ways that in hindsight, I, what disciples am I making? I mean, I I don't, I'm not going to point any fingers at anybody and, and, um, I'm not going to look at any other pastors. I have I have to look in the mirror, right? To be fair, first and foremost. Um, and so, as um, God has been tugging at my heart, if you allow me to uh, 
say here. I know I'm supposed to be interviewing you guys, but if you allow me to just put my heart out there as I normally do here on the podcast, um, your book has helped with that process as well. Um, is that the gospel you preach determines the disciples you make. And so am I making disciples by the gospel that I'm preaching, not just from the pulpit, uh, but in my life? Um, and so with that said, um, unpack that for us a little bit more. I think I already unpacked it in my personal life. Uh, so maybe unpack it theologically and practically, of course, for you guys. Um, and Ben, we'll go back with you first. Yeah, so we... Uh so I'm a pastor at a local church and, and, you know, six or seven years ago, you know, before Bill came in and helped us out, we tried to do, had this big discipleship push. We had like a six week sermon series that I preached and it was high energy and I gave everything that I had into it. We, we culminated with getting a different speaker in uh, to do a discipleship weekend. We ended up having 130 people, sign up for, to be in discipleship groups. We bought everyone curriculum and within six months, pretty much all of those groups except for three um, dissolved. And it was like, wow, you know, uh, what am I doing wrong here? And and yeah. why isn't this, like, why can't I get people to really see, sense the discipleship is not optional. It's, it's definitely like it's a, it's the Christian life. And how can we kind of, you know, so I had this whole big culmination of confusion. And when Bill came in and said, the gospel you preach determines the disciples you make, I realized that I've been preaching a forgiveness only gospel, which is what we talk about in one of the, the gospels in the book. I'd yeah. been basically saying, um, if you want your sins forgiven and you want to go to heaven, all you need to do is pray this little prayer. And it's, I'm not saying that prayer is bad and I'm not saying that prayer is, is not a way to receive Christ or begin a relationship with him. It's actually a beautiful way. But the way I was presenting it, your whole Christian life is defined in a moment. And, and after that moment, it's like, well, after that, just go to church every Sunday and you'll be good. Um, that, that's not a gospel that leads to discipleship. And so, the, you know, the gospel you preach determines the disciples you make for me is if you are preaching a king, the kingdom gospel of Jesus, you'll be calling people to follow him. It won't be just about a moment in time. It'll actually be be a life that begins with baptism and follows in with training that equips you to be a disciple and makes disciples. And, and the transformation that happens in a church that begins to grasp that is unbelievable but at the same time, it takes a lot long time for a church to turn from a non-disciple making culture into a disciple making culture. And so um, this isn't like you can't just buy this in a box and plug it in at your church and, and it works. This this actually requires a whole lot of work. It begins with the gospel and then it requires you to actually have an intentional disciple making process in your church. And quite honestly, there's not a whole lot of churches that are have an intentional disciple making process, you yeah. know, in at the core of their church. A lot of a lot of our churches, including our church up until a couple of years ago, were hoping that people were kind of picking up discipleship through osmosis. Um, mm -hmm. It was just kind of a hit and miss sort of a thing. But um, yeah, when you when you're preaching the kingdom gospel of Jesus, it necessarily and and um, and in a very connected way leads to being a disciple and making disciples. And that permeates the whole church and transforms the church. Wow. Ben, I have, I have so many follow-up questions, but um, be, before we head over to Bill for him to answer it, 
Um, I know a lot of pastors are resonating, local church pastors are resonating with what you're saying. Um, if, if you can tell us a little bit about that transition and maybe a few details um, in the time that we have left. And you say it took several years, a lot of intentionality. Um, it starts with the gospel. But what did that look like? What, what was all that intentionality, the effort, the pain, the ups, the downs? Um, tell us a little bit more about that, if, if you're okay with that. Yeah, well, for me, it began with spending a year in the Bonhoeffer project. And I don't want this to sound like a commercial, but that really was the transitional point for me, was sitting around a table with 10 other guys online once a month and unpacking all of this and looking at the gospel for three months and really analyzing the gospel that I'd pre been preaching and see if it lined up with the gospel that Jesus was preaching. Mm -hmm. um, so the Bonhoeffer project was absolutely instrumental. And then um, in, in just the formation of the thought, but the actual implementation of it, uh, you know, when I was going through the Bonhoeffer project, Bill said, well, just understand this is going to take five to seven years. And wow. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, I want something that's going to work today. I don't yeah. want something that's going to have to take me seven years. But that's all part of this process. It's like Jesus, um, This, I, I think it was Eugene Peterson or, or it was Dallas Willard. And, Bill, you can correct me. But they said, you know, discipleship is a slow work that can't be hurried, but it's an urgent work that cannot be delayed. And mm. so you've got, you're in this tension where this has to be changed and it needs to be changed now, but it takes a long time for things to change. And so we're into year three here at Cyprus. And um, I really do think it's going to be about another four years before it really, we're at a tipping point right now. It's a very critical tipping point. Um, but we, we've got an intentional disciple making process. We have a tool that we use. We are inviting everyone who's baptized into our congregation, everyone who uh, is a new believer, they go through, we, we invite them into this process. And it takes about four to six months. And then after that, it leads into other ministries in either, either in the church or out in the community. Um, and so we've been working on integrating a comprehensive discipleship strategy, which involves every ministry, but at the core of it, it involves the, the training that Paul talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 4, where he says, train to be godly. And, if, and he talks about in Ephesians 4, where it says, equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That, that becomes the core of our disciple-making ministry here now. Wow. Uh, again, I have like uh, it, local church pastors are a big um, part of the listeners to the Restore podcast. And so I, I want to ask you some follow-up questions on that uh, to both of you, but specifically where you're at. Uh, but before I go there, uh, Bill, can you uh, chime in into expanding um, a bit more into the, the gospel you preach determines the disciples you make? Yes. Um, I, I think that it's about expectation. You know, one of the things that we say uh, is that that all who are called to salvation are called to discipleship, no exceptions, no excuses. Yeah. I just think about that a moment. Mm. That, that it's, that when God saved us, he also called us. Yes. That the gospel is, is a whole thing, one thing, not two or three things. It's being called. It's being brought into the family of God. It is being uh, equipped and trained and giving our entire lives over to him 
so that we can live out this life of service and be involved in his mission. Yes. And it's learning to live and love like Jesus. It's learning to, to live our lives as though Jesus were living them. But So when I was a pastor, stand up in front of a congregation, what is it I'm really expecting from them? Because I don't think that we th- expect very much of them. Oh, wow. What we, really, what we really trained them to do is to be a supporting cast. Because the, the whole idea of church is, let's see how many people we can get to the church, because we count the numbers. And so we say, this is how many people we have. This is how big our church building is. This is our budget. Uh, this is, you know, A, X, Y, and Z, A, B, C. Uh, look at us. You know, this is what we're doing. When we talk about come and see, we're talking about come and see, you know, what our church has to offer and these kinds of things. And, you know, this has been known as the attractional model. I think it's essentially discredited. Uh, mm. It's discredited because it doesn't, hasn't really been very good at making disciples because essentially it'd be like saying uh, if UPS sold all their trucks and just had their one distribution center and they said, okay, now Mr. Hall, uh, your package has arrived. And uh, we open the window here, the will call window, uh, from a, between 11 and 12 daily, and you can come and pick up your package. <laughs> and that would not work. That would be unsuccessful. That would be an abject failure. Mm. And so essentially, trying to get non-Christians to go to church is almost a fool's errand mm. in the sense that that we know that very few people actually show up at church unless a friend takes them. Right. And the actual, it's not that I'm against it, obviously. I'm not against it. I'm not saying you should stop it. What I am saying is that it re, it's the reverse of the flow. The flow is that we mm. church gathers for discipleship, but it scatters for ministry. Wow. And, you know, this is this is all something we all have heard, but the church is for discipleship, but disciples are God's delivery system. So essentially why UPS works is because the packages are delivered to us in our homes. And so the delivery system are the disciples that we send out. You know, when the benediction is given, then the people go out. And when they go out, though, it's what we have done with them that matters. You know, we can, that we, you know, no matter how a, a church could be doing a horrible, horrible job, and they still deploy their people back into the streets every Sunday. And when they deploy them out, if we haven't discipled them, if we haven't developed them, then we're not doing our jobs. And so we're ineffective in the field. So here's going back to the expectation thing is telling people. You know, you're hearing a sermon, you're studying the Bible, you're doing all these things, but don't let the Word of God stop with you. Hmm. Uh, You are to be a conduit. You are a witness of Christ our Lord, a faithful witness of Christ our Lord. That's what you are to be. And so we we actually need to start believing. And this is a full-bodied gospel. If your gospel expects people to be Fruit-bearing disciples. It's not good enough just to be faithful. You have to be fruitful. 
And so if you're going to be a fruitful Christian, then you, you're deployed where you live, work, and play. And it's a, the gospel that we preach either expects that or doesn't expect it. If you wow. don't expect it, it won't happen. If you do expect it and you have infrastructure to make it happen, it will happen. So, uh, you know, the other day I got a note, a, 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 actually a pretty good long email from a pastor in a okay. southern state. And he said, Bill, uh, three years ago, I started off with five men. And we've had these uh, D groups, they called, and discipleship groups of four people. Mm-hmm. And he said, now, three years later, we have over 80 people in our groups. Wow. And he said, the problem is, now, see, see, this would mean in most churches, that's a huge success. That's the gold standard. That's the crown jewel. You know, it, we, we've grown. But here's what he said next. And this is why I really, I wrote back to this guy because he was very astute. He said, but the fact is that we, we ha- we're not making disciples who make oh. disciples. Hmm. That, that we have 80 people in groups, but there are no new disciples. Hmm. We're not making new disciples. High expectations, as you were saying. Yeah. So essentially, he asked me what he should do. And I thought about it for 24 hours. <laughs> and I talked to a couple of friends about it. I wrote back to him. And I said, shut down the groups. Wow. Now, that's shock value in that. And I said, but the reason you're telling them this is, look, we're wasting our time. We're having groups and we're growing our groups, but we're not obeying the Great Commission because Jesus told his disciples, go make disciples of all nations. And if you're going to make disciples of all nations, that means you've got to have to have new disciples. Uh, Mm. They were teenagers, most of them, and they knew that, that they're going to have to make new disciples. And so churches go through the motions of doing discipleship and very successfully running programs of discipleship. But if they don't make new disciples, it's a failure because it's not because this is a strategy to reach the world. And if you're not reaching anybody, you have failed. Hmm. Tell us how you really feel, Bill. Tell us. Tell us. It's kind of vague. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want you to get a lot of uh, I want to stir people up a little bit, you know. Let's not waste well, our time. Hey, you know, I really appreciate that um, 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 because it's um, stirring me up. And and again, I need to look at myself I, uh, at that. And as you're speaking, um, just the story you just mentioned about the, the um, 80 uh, groups, um, 80 people in the group. Um, that's an amazing story. There's a lot of shock value there of shutting it down because, as you're saying, they weren't making disciples. Um, and so that, I mean, there's a perfect segue here with that said, and now I'm going to, uh, piggyback back off you, Bill, and then back to Ben here, but Bill, so what does it look like? So I think perhaps some people are listening and they're saying, okay, so what does a, a discipleship group look like? What is it doing? Um, what are we studying? And Ben alluded to it earlier about starting with the gospel. So I guess we can say that. But maybe give us some of the nuts and bolts. You know, why why does discipleship best happen in a small group, and what what does it look like in that small group? Um, and so maybe if you can talk to us about some of those um, 
nuts and bolts aspects, and then we'll go back to Ben as well. Yeah, well, I, I, I've taught, you know, doctoral classes for a week at a time on small group theory and all that kind of thing. But I, I would say, uh, let me explain it this way, because uh, after all these years, this is kind of what I've come to. When I was uh, first a pastor, uh, I, after about a year, I wrote an article uh, for, for a denominational magazine. It was called How to Build a Big Staff in a Small Church. And essentially, uh, what I stumbled into as a young pastor was probably one of the very best things I ever did. And that was, I got three, there were three other guys, four other guys that we, I'd get together, the five of us would get together uh, every Tuesday morning about 6 a.m. and have breakfast and talk about what happened the previous Sunday in church. And this was like a Tuesday morning. Okay. So we'd talk about it and we'd go down through all the people in the church and we and it was a small congregation. You know, we had about 125 people, and I was just getting started, and we were all in our 20s. And so we're trying to figure out what to do together. And I realized we did this for several years. And our church grew, and it developed, and it was very nice. It was a wonderful experience. But the thing was, I thought, now, why did we all grow, and why did it multiply? Hmm. And the reason was, is because we were doing something together that was missional. That it it was not only discipleship, our own discipleship, but part of our discipleship is mission. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would suggest don't have a group that just meets and that's all they do. Mm-hmm. I, I'm suggesting have a group that has a larger mission. And if you have a group, have a published start date and an end date with a covenant that says, we will prayerfully attempt to multiply. And wow. if you don't, if they don't multiply after two rounds, let's say two, you know, if you give them six months or something and they don't multiply in two, in one year, then, then say, okay, you guys can continue to meet, but I just want you to know that you're no longer a part of this particular idea because, you know, the covenant requires us to really give a full faith effort and uh, being afraid isn't good enough. That's not a good enough excuse. If you don't know what to do because we haven't told you what to do or trained you what to do, then that's a different matter. But I I think that that that's what I mean. When you give strong pastoral leadership in the area of spiritual life, to me, these are the real nuts and bolts because these are the things that make things work. Now, the exception to this is you get a really highly talented public speaker or a great showman as your leader and you put them on the platform and they draw all kinds of people. Then you sort of get a hall pass on doing the right thing. Mm. But apart from that, um, I think that these are the kinds of things that make things work. Yeah. And you point out, and and correct me if I'm wrong here, but if I recall correctly, you you guys really make it clear in the book that um, in a local church setting, essentially that, uh, the process of discipleship starts with the leader, right? So if the leader is not doing it, the pastor, uh, whoever is leading the, the uh, church, normally obviously a pastor, sometimes in some areas um, maybe a lay pastor, whatever it may be, bivocational pastor. But if, it, if they're not doing it, um, it, you really can't expect others to be doing it to some extent. Is that, is that fair to say, uh, Bill? Yeah, because it's, uh, to me, because it's not in their DNA, and mm-hmm. if it's not in your DNA, it's not real. Yeah. And everybody can tell it's not real. 
And so if it doesn't have, you know, uh, that's why Jim Putman, he has a ch- you know, his church is up in Idaho. They're called Real Life Ministries. Right. And I, I like that, you know, the idea of it's real life and it's yeah. uh, authentic and it's real. It's not fake. It's not pretend. It's not some kabuki dance. You know, it's like we're really doing this stuff and we're living right. it out. Um, ben, so following up with that same question, now specifically, I guess, in your context there at your church. So you've already talked a little bit about it. But in your in your context, what does what does it look like for you? What it's been how what has it looked like when you are sitting there and you're meeting with your tribe with your folks in a small group or whatever it may be um what are some of the nuts and bolts that you guys are doing that and what does that discipleship process essentially look like at your church so uh let me just add a little bit more so i come to your church and i accept jesus and i say ben pastor ben i'm i'm ready i'm ready to you know be a disciple that makes disciples what does that process look for me yeah that's a great question so first of all we've i've got a I want to ask Bill, and maybe this is a follow-up question that you can ask him, Javier. But like, yeah, a, what's a kabuki dance? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of a kabuki dance before. What is that? Where do I find out who, where to do that? You need to look that up. <laughs> oh Bill, man, Bill, I just I just googled it, and it said see Bill Hall. No, I'm just kidding. It doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, that's good. Um, just, just a comment, like you can tell why I like to hang out with Bill Hull because it's just like, he says everything that you want to say, but you're not able to articulate like he does. He's able to say everything, um, really, really well. So I just enjoyed that, um, that last few minutes there. That was really, really good. Uh, to answer your question, I think the first part of your question is key when you said in your context. And I think that's something we're really big on with the Bonhoeffer project is every ministry context is different. So when we're, when we're in a cohort with guys in New Zealand and London and and Cameroon, their ministry context, there's some similarities, but there is very unique cultural differences as well. Even from the differences between having a a local church in California and Nashville or Florida, um, you know, from the West coast to the central, um, the central coast (laughs) um, to the center of the country, to the east coast of the country, Um, there's some significant differences. And so what works in my particular ministry might not work everywhere. But what we've figured out is to do, so to specifically answer your question, if you were to come and you heard the gospel and you'd signed up and you said, I want to follow Jesus, I want to follow him without conditions, without excuses for the rest of my life, I'd say, come and be baptized. And then we'll, we'd invite you into um, a discipleship group. And basically what that process looks like is we're going to take, we take everyone through the gospel of Mark. Um, so our, our, our tool uses the gospel of Mark as the foundation. Um, you get to come in and, and we read through Mark chapter one together. And at the end of Mark chapter one, you have to commit. So now you have an idea of what we're going to be doing in each discipleship group session. And after chapter one, you decide whether you want to continue or not. Uh, the whole the whole idea of that is after chapter one, you've got you can count the cost. Um, this is what we're doing. We haven't wow. baited and switched you. If you want to say I don't really want to do this, this is not the right time for me. I'm out. Um, that's okay. Um, 
And so, so we haven't had anyone in our context say, no, they don't want to do it yet, but, um, but that gives them the off-ramp if they want the off-ramp. Um, so then we get into chapter two and every chapter from that point forward, um, there is an emphasis in, in our system that, that puts the emphasis on not on knowledge-based discipleship, but on obedience-based discipleship. So every chapter we're looking for something that Jesus says or something that he does that we want to emulate and we're going to put into practice together. Um, like Bill said, I think it's really in our context, and this is working, um, at, if you sign up in Mark chapter 1 to go through the rest of the, the discipleship process, you at the, the last commitment that you are making, we sign a covenant, there's five um, covenant promises that you're making, and if you sign up, the, the last promise that you're, you're, you're making, the last commitment that you make, is that you are going to multiply this prayerfully in some in some way at the end of it, and that could look like serving to build up the ministry of the church, serving in a way that's going to reach the world, serving in a way that's going to disciple other people. Um, so there's multiple ways you can multiply this, but you're not going to that this is not going to end with you. Um, just as an example of Mark chapter five and what we're talking about, obedience-based discipleship. Uh, in Mark chapter five, Jesus takes his disciples to the other side. And so at the end of that, that chapter, we ask, okay, where is the other side? Where is the last place any of us want to go um, in our community? And then we decide where that is, and then we go there and figure out a way to serve people. And usually it's at Soledad Street, which is a place in our community where there's drug addicts, there's prostitutes, there's a lot of homelessness. Um, it's, a really, it's, it's a place where there is a lot of least of these kind of people. And so this, you asked me what this looks like in my context. So I was in a discipleship group most, most recently with three carpenters, um, which, was a, which was really fun. Um, yeah. and, and we would meet at 6 o'clock to 7.30 every Wednesday morning. And when we got to Mark Chapter 5 and we decided on the other side project, we actually went to the local homeless shelter and we served the guys. There was about 60 of them. We served them dinner. And then we slept at the homeless shelter that night with those guys, woke up the next morning and served those guys um, uh, breakfast. And the two of the guys in the group led a devotional, one in the evening, one in the morning. Um, so we're, we're reading that Jesus is going to the other side and then we do it ourselves. And, and so it's, you're working in there. This is not just something for me to learn. There's also something for me to obey. And, and the obedience is very stark because either you're going to go to the other side in your community or you're not. Um, right. And so we just continue to reinforce that. One of the other uniquenesses of our process is um, it takes you through Mark's gospel. So you're actually learning what the gospel is. There's very few discipleship tools that will teach you and reinforce what the gospel actually is. And so if the gospel you preach determines the disciples you make, you want a discipleship process that's actually going to equip you to do evangelism and know what the gospel is with clarity. And so yeah. we've incorporated that into our process too. So we've taken non-believers through this process. We've taken um, non-discipled believers through this process and we've taken new believers through this process. And, um, and it's, and it's, it's, I mean, I hate to be so practical as to say it's working, but it's multiplying. It's multiplying yeah. kind of like that rate that we talk about in, in Mark chapter four, where uh, the fourth soilers are multiplying 60, uh, 30, 60, a hundredfold. And I, just one more thing, if you ever see that kind of multiplication, um, pay attention because it's a very rare thing to experience that kind of multiplication in ministry. 
Right. Well, Ben, I think it's it's powerful what you're saying as well, because you're it, it seems you guys are doing, in a sense, also what Bill had mentioned earlier, which is the, the mission part, right? So you're starting with the gospel, of course, and then you're doing the mission, feeding the homeless, staying there, feeding them in the morning, serving them, um, which uh, service is the essence of what the gospel looks like in real life. Again, uh, what you guys mentioned earlier. So thank you for flushing that out. And I'm sure there's, I mean, I know I have many more questions. I don't, we've been here for a bit, so I don't want to take up too much of more of you guys' time. You guys have been very generous and just a lot to chew on with what uh, both of you have been talking about. Um, with that said, uh, Ben and Bill, the Bonhoeffer Project has been mentioned uh, several times. I want to give you guys the opportunity to kind of uh, talk to us about that. Where, where for the listeners, um, where can people get the information? What exactly is it? Um, is there a cost involved? Um, any information you want to give the listeners about that, um, please do so. It's okay. Give the commercial. I'm okay with that. <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. Well, I, I, I suppose the, uh, the Bonhoeffer Project is where we take leaders and we, we spend one year together with them. And we have 10 meetings, and these many meetings are four hours each. Uh, normally, we start with a two-day retreat, and then other meetings are online. Some of the groups around the country are in person all of the time. But uh, we started off the first year with two groups, and then year two, we had five groups. Year three, we had 14 groups. Mm. This year, we have... 25 groups and next year we're trusting by God's grace to have 56 groups. Wow. And they're made up of pri primarily well all leaders. They're they're leaders and probably 85% are pastors. Okay. And what we do is here's what we do in one year. Uh first we we tell them we we talk about why. Why make disciples and uh why the big why is that the gospel uh we're called to uh to follow uh so we we essentially say you know the gospel you believe in determines the disciple you make so we start upstream with the big why and that's the gospel and so that's where we hopefully change your mind and then we go to the what which is make disciples and we define a disciple and then we talk about what that means and all the the issues in developing a disciple and disciples, healthy disciples, reproducing disciples, uh, in all the variety of ways that we come as people and all the gifts and differences and we have in personality and style and all those kinds of things come into play. And that is, of course, the what. And uh, under the what, that's where we hopefully change your heart. Where we, where you, your DNA, you start to build that DNA for making disciples, and then the third aspect of the year, the third, the the last third of the year is the how, and that's the plan. And okay. so the plan that is uh, designed for you, that you believe in, that is utilizes your gifts in the context of your church. And then the uh, and that's really where we hopefully change behavior or change habits. 
Okay. And uh, where it gets into your schedule. So essentially, it's it's upstream, midstream, downstream. It's it's why, what, and how. It's transform the mind, the heart, and the behavior. And then uh, we help launch uh, these men and women into their um, ministries. And uh, additionally, uh, we have uh, options that we have developed year two uh, where you can take it into your church uh, with the help of one of our coaches or uh, we have what we call the satisfied soul concept where we work on, we find that when you're deconstructing your gospel, you're deconstructing uh, the church, you're deconstructing um, the, uh, yourself. Yeah. And um, so sometimes we really have to t- talk about who you are in all of this too. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's, that's basically it. And um, our, uh, we're, our, uh, website is the bonhoefferproject.com. Okay. And, uh, Excellent. we would like to invite everybody to come to our national symposium you're talking about, and maybe all your listeners, they can go on and, uh, it's going to be the 23rd and 24th of October in Nashville and okay. go on our website and look it up. And, uh, we hope that you'll come and you'll be inspired and, uh, you'll understand more fully some of the things we're teaching. Sure. And for the National Symposium, um, what's the website there? I think I have it here, but um, I don't have the actual website. I got the event right. Uh, it's, it's, it's the bon- yeah, it's the com. If you go on the bonhoefferproject.com okay. and just scroll down just maybe half a page, you'll see it and you can click on it. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. So people can see it there. Along those same lines, um, I, I'm probably going to, you're probably already heard this at the beginning at the intro and you'll hear it probably at the exit so I want to make clear here and this is a good time to let all the listeners know that if they want to get the book the the uh, discipleship gospel uh, your uh, publisher has made a 20 percent discount to all of our listeners they can go to himpublications.com and uh, uh, order the book there and on the coupon part just enter the word restore and you will get a 20% uh, discount. And for those listening, if you email me, um, and my email, as most of you guys know, that are, are actually listening, Javier dot, you know, Javier dot, you know, Diaz at FloridaConference.com, and um, you can just, uh, the first three people to email, to actually email me and say, I would like a book, we will send them a book for free. We will pay for it and get that 20% discount and send it to you for free. So make sure you email me at javier.diaz at floridaconference.com. I highly, highly recommend the book. Uh, Ben and Bill, um, any final thoughts before we conclude our time? Uh, First, I wanna thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Um, Bill, you were the first person that I emailed and uh, within 24 hours, you actually replied, which I was surprised. Happily surprised. I would say, praise the Lord. Uh, this guy doesn't even know me. <laughs> do that. And so thank you for that. And uh, Ben, thank you for also coming in as well and doing this. And um, it has been a blessing to have you guys. A lot to uh, chew on, a lot to think about. And again, I want to encourage people to uh, read the book. Um, and this is what I say to all my listeners. If you agree or disagree, just listen. And then let the Spirit lead and guide you um, to what they're trying to say in the book. And um, so 
feel free to comment, to uh, email me, to let me know on social media realms what you guys uh, think. Uh, but again, any last thoughts, Ben or and Bill? I would just like to say thank you to Javier. You are a really good interviewer. You ask great questions, and um, and I appreciate the work you've done on the front end. It's a joy to have been with you, and I'm really great. I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to be with you today. Thank you, Ben. Praise the Lord. Um, and uh, Javier, I just want to just ask God's blessing upon you and upon your tribe. And we're so thankful for the work God is doing through your ministry and through your people and, and your denomination. And we're just really looking forward to meeting you in person uh, in Nashville. Praise the Lord. I look forward to it as well, as long with the others that will be coming with us. So uh, thank you guys so much for that. And uh, may God continue to bless you all. Thanks, man. Thank you so much. I surely hope that you were blessed and challenged all at once. Thank you again to Bill and Ben for your time and for writing the book. Please don't forget, the publisher of the book has given the Restore Podcast a 20% discount for the paperback. All you have to do is go to himpublications.com, insert the word Restore, where it says apply coupon, and you're set. So please go purchase a copy or two or, or many more. And as mentioned, we are giving some away. So the first three people to leave a review of the podcast after this episode and email me their info at javier.diaz at floridaconference.com. We will send them a copy. Thank you again for listening. Blessings to you all. Until next month. Thank you for listening to this Restore podcast. We hope you've been blessed. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss any of our inspiring episodes. 